I'm delighted and actually honoured to be here. This is a, it's a pretty historic place, isn't it? It's pretty formidable, really. I, I first came in here about 35 years ago when I was admitted as the university assessor. Uh, that was my first uh, experience of the place. And you don't get in here very often. Uh, and thank you for such a great turnout. I wonder, I wonder if Charles uh, had such a good turnout when he held his parliament here. So I've got a wonderful story to tell you. I've probably got too much stuff, so I should get on very fast. You're not expected to read everything that's on the screen. Essentially, it's my notes, because my memory's not as good as it used to be, so I need it up there. I've got that wrong, apparently. You're not formally the friends of the Bodleian, though I'm sure many of you are friends. So I'm going to talk about William Morris, Lord Nuffield, and he, I've got him down as Oxford, possibly Britain's greatest industrialist and benefactor. Um, I was to meeting last September at Nuffield College which celebrated the 50th anniversary of his death and the 100th anniversary of his first car, of course, the bullnose Morris Oxford. Uh, so my plan is to quickly go through background family, first business from home, expansion, High Street Cowley, cars, medicine, benefactions, Nuffield Place, wealth, wealth given, and I propose him as Oxford's greatest ever citizen. So uh, he's got a lot of competition, but it's, as I say, it's such a wonderful story we have to tell. Can you all hear me? I'm not using a microphone, but I do tend to shout. Are you happy without the microphone? Good, thank you. There's a picture of a handsome young man, probably when he was about 18, uh, grown up a bit by then. He's not often thought as a socialite, but this picture was taken at, uh, by Ottoline Morel, so he obviously did indulge himself a little bit with the local society. Uh, the sort of bulldog in him you can see there, can't you? And this is, I think this is my favourite. This is when he was entering the House of Lords, and he looks distinctly uncomfortable to me, doesn't he? <laughs> and he looks pretty scruffy too. So there's Lord Nuffield entering the House of Lords. My sources are a, a series of books, particularly this book, Wealth Well Given, which has got multiple authors who knew him for various aspects of his life, edited by his nephew, John Minns. And it's the Minns family that now carry the flag. He didn't have any descendants of his own, so it's the Minns family that sort of follow up the Nuffield line. More biographies. So the facts of his life, born on 10th of October, 1877, He's born actually in Worcester, but his family have got a long history in Oxfordshire. His father had gone to Worcester for employment purposes, but they are, it's an Oxfordshire family, and they came back when he was three, they came back to Oxford, and then he lived in James Street. He was the eldest of seven children. Only three of them survived, and that's sort of moving, isn't it? Because it reminds us that childhood was a dangerous time, even into the 19th century. So his parents lost four of his siblings. He left school at 15 and apprenticed to a local bicycle seller and repair in St. Giles for nine months. I think he was getting five bob a week. At the end of that time, he asked for a rise of a shilling a week. The guy refused him, and so he decided that he'd be better off working for himself. And I think from that moment on, he never worked for anybody else. Um, so he, age 16, he set up at home uh, in James Street. He had a shed in the back garden to do the repairs. 
His mother gave him the front lounge as a showroom and he proceeded to repair and, uh, and sell bicycles from, from the home. There's the family, his two sisters. There's the house in James Street, which many of you will have seen, no doubt. There's the blue plaque on the wall. Uh, and this is him as a young man. He was a very competitive cyclist. He won more than a hundred races when he was a teenager and in his early twenties. And that was pretty good publicity for his bicycle business. So right from the beginning, he did extremely well. Uh, and he carried on his interest, you know, he encouraged sports days at when, he, when he was in his middle age. And here's a nice picture of him encouraging cyclists when he's probably in his 50s. So, as I said, during the 1890s he won more than a hundred races. Uh, he opened the shop, he very quickly grew out of the, the front room at home and the shed in the garden. So he, he rented the shop at 48 High Street and he began manufacturing bicycles there. There's the shop. Many of you will know it because it now looks like this. It's the Fitright Shoe Shop. Uh, the door does commemorate his presence there. They've got an engraved glass door in the, to the shop and it tells you that he was there. I think probably from 1900. I haven't got the exact date when he took the shop. Uh, but isn't this wonderful? It, sorry. It reminds us that the coaches were still running in 1900. And here's the coach uh, parked outside his shop, uh, ready, presumably, to go off to London. So, as he said, he, he very soon moved on from cycles to motorcycles. Uh, and in 1902, he needed more space again. So he moved round the corner into what was a livery stable in Longwall Street, and you'll all know that. He got married in 1904 to Elizabeth Anstey, and I said the marriage had a shaky start because he went bankrupt just at the time he married her. He, he'd taken a partner, and I don't quite know what happened, but he went bankrupt, uh, and he said he'd never do that again. So, uh, but the marriage survived 55 years. She's quite a handsome lady. She was a cyclist too. They met through the cycling club. Uh, so he was very successful in the early 1900s, moving from bikes to motorbikes and then on to cars. And he bought cars and he hired cars and he learned to mend cars. And then he decided he was going to build cars. And in 1912, his ambition was to get his first car to the London Motor Show. The Motor Show had already started by then. Uh, but he couldn't get an engine that suited him. And so he went to the motor show with his blueprints only and he sold 400 cars off the blueprints. And I think that says quite a lot about the, his character, doesn't it? It's very impressive. And he delivered early in 1913, he, he delivered. So here is the old, what was the livery stable, turned into the Oxford garage. And here are the old cars that he was hiring out. Um, here he is inside. This is Morris, looking a bit disreputable, with a fag in his mouth. He was a very heavy smoker the whole of his life. So a lot of the photographs you see of him, he'll either have a cigarette or a pipe in his mouth. Uh, in 1910, uh, that 
old garage stable was replaced by a new building, I think by Merton College at the time. I don't think he built it himself. Uh, but you can see he's gone up in the world. Look at the cars outside now. And again, these were for hire or for sale. Uh, so he was trading in cars. And then uh, that's what it looks like today. And again, I hope most of you have had a look in this display window. This is one of the pictures out of the, the display window. Uh, so in 1913 he built three, 1,300 cars and he moved, obviously he couldn't do it from that garage, he moved up to Cowley to an old military training college which was empty. Uh, and there's another story too, in 1913 he had a great fight with the city council about buses, I'll come back to that in a moment. And during the First World War the factory produced munitions. Uh, in the 20s, expansion very rapid. And by the end of the 20s, he was Britain's largest car manufacturer. He'd also introduced MGs. He himself wasn't terribly interested in fast or racing cars, but he had this guy, Cecil Kimber, who was, and he gave him his head, he let him get on, and Cecil Kimber essentially invented MG, which stands for Morris Garages. Uh, and he, he bought Wolseley, and then later on he bought Riley. So here he is in the bullnose Morris Oxford, his first successful car, and this is him. He's now taken to a bowler hat. Uh, the car's outside in Holloway, Cowley. Uh, here is the old transport system in Oxford, the horse-drawn tram. And apparently Oxford was lagging behind most other cities at this time. And Morris said, this is ridiculous, we need some motor buses. He bought some motor buses from London, some old buses, and offered to put them on free. Uh, and these, this is some of the publicity. Here we are, it's Friday, December the 5th, and this was 1913. Uh, and this, there are, apparently the local press had a wonderful time. There are all sorts of cartoons from this period. This is the city councillors doing a Morris dance. <laughs> and here, here's Morris, uh, the modern St. George, having slain the... Uh, the horse-drawn carriage and introduced the motor bus. And there, this is, sorry, it's not a very good picture, but again, this is one of the original motor buses. And here's Morris with his pipe and his bowler hat. Uh, here he is with the Morris Cowley, which was the, the bigger car after the Morris Oxford. He produced a Cowley uh, with a bigger engine. And here he is again, I think cigarette or something in his hand down there. But he also decided he should produce a cheaper car than the Austin 7. Of course, his big competitor was Austin 7. And he decided he was going to produce a car for £100. And he managed it. The Austin 7 was, I've forgotten, 120 odd, I think. But Morris managed to produce this for £100. Uh, then it expanded. This apparently was once a school where his father went, but he became part of his factory. Um, the factory grows. The factory grows, the factory grows. I gather at one time there were 28,000 people working for him. And then MG, as I've said, was created by, by Cecil Kimber, uh, and it sort of got going in the mid-20s. Here's a group of them in the 30s. Kimber was competitive, and look at this, 43 Look at the top here, I can't, where's my thing gone? Lost it. 43 international class records were established by MG cars between 30 and 59. And uh, 
you'll see and the, down there Sterling Moss was one of the drivers of the car. Sterling Moss managed to get up to 245 miles an hour but he was beaten by Phil Hill who got up to 255 with a one and a half litre engine, quite a small engine. But the car was that. And so it's not surprising it could go quite quickly. It doesn't look much like the MG sports cars that we remember. Now I had one of these as a dinky toy when I was young and I thought I still had it and I was hoping I'd be able to get it out of my pocket to show you but I, I can't lay my hands on it. Uh, away from cars, he was also, as it says there, increasingly valued. He was becoming noticed. Um, and he was elected as a vice president of the Radcliffe Infirmary and then as its president. I'm not quite sure what they did, so there must be somebody here who probably knows more about that than me, so if you can tell me what they did. But what it did mean, he was in contact with lots of doctors. Um, similarly, he not only became a member of Huntercombe Golf Course, he bought it. And there's a lovely story that he, his first application for membership was turned down because he was an artisan. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good story. So when they got into financial trouble, he just bought the golf club. He extended the golf house and went to live there. And I think probably his wife wasn't terribly domesticated. I think they just used the golf club as a sort of hotel. And they lived there for seven years. Uh, and as I say, these last activities brought him into contact with a lot of doctors. And he was particularly friendly with Farquhar Buzzard, who was the Regis Professor at the time and Girdleston, who was the orthopaedic surgeon. He'd been noticed elsewhere, he became 27 here. Oh, there we are, yeah. He became one of Mr. Punch's personalities. So he was obviously being noticed. And here in the background is St. Thomas's Hospital. So he said he operated in London as well as in Oxford. Uh, and that's why his first big gift to a hospital was to St. Thomas's. And in 1927, he gave £100,000 to St. Thomas's Hospital. Oxford got in on the act a little bit later. In 1931, they conferred an honorary doctorate of civil law on him. And the public orator said, amongst miracles, he is the chief miracles. Amongst movement, he is the source of motion. Of course, that would have been said in Latin, wouldn't it? Not in English. Uh, this was before he'd given any money to the medical school. So somebody in the university was quite perceptive and thought we had to, had to get him on side. So here he is looking again, I think, slightly uncomfortable in his doctorate gown. Uh, in '33, he moved to Nuffield Place, which is the house he lived in for the rest of his life, which was on the edge of the golf course. Um, by 37, I think I might have said, he'd become the largest motor manufacturer in Europe. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, with all these German cars around. The Second World War, the factory was given over to military matters and he had factories that built the planes. He had an airstrip at Cowley where injured planes, as it were, damaged planes, could, if they could fly, could fly in and be repaired there. And there's some good stories of the, you know, guys flying in, having lunch at their old school and then flying out in the afternoon in their repaired plane. Uh, then the sad bit really, Morris merged with Austin to become BMC. Although he became his president, I'm quite sure his heart wasn't in it then and he was in his mid-70s by this time. 
Uh, so he resigned from that and he died aged 85 in 1963. Considering he was a hypochondriac and a very heavy speaker, he, he did quite well. <laughs> uh, so, yes, he was 85. Uh, so, move on to what I should be talking about, the benefactions. Um, and the earliest is, is a fun one, really, because Osler became, came to Oxford as the Regis Professor in 1905. He was probably the world's most distinguished physician at that time. He was also a wealthy man, and he had a car and a chauffeur. And the chauffeur very quickly discovered that there was this chap, Willie Morris, down the road in the Longwall garage. He was a good mechanic. So whenever Osler had a problem with his car, Willie was called, and he, in the early days he arrived on his bicycle with his tool bag, and uh, they became friends, really. Uh, I think it, Morris's first uh, hypochondria was expressed through him complaining to Osler, and Osler took him in, examined him, said, I think you've probably got a duodenal ulcer, and told him what he should do, diet, he didn't have surgery. But the, it's a good story because m many years later he was examined by one of the Nuffield professors of medicine and he was, uh, you know, he was screened and so on and it was shown that he had a scar in his duodenum so Osler probably got it right. But in, towards the end of the war, the First World War, Osler appealed for money to build a rehabilitation workshop which was, eventually became part of the Nuffield Orthopaedic Centre. And William Morris was on the donations list for that appeal. I'd, I've never been able to find out how much he gave, but that's the first uh, donation that we're aware of. The, um, in Nuffield Library, sorry, Nuffield Library, there is this donations book. It's, a hand, it's actually a, an address book, um, but it's handwritten, and in there, are the, the evidence of hundreds of donations that he gave in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And it's a fascinating read. Uh, for example, 1926, his first big donation this was this £10,000. Borstal visitors, he had the idea that these delinquents who'd got themselves in Borstal would be at risk of getting, you know, coming out and being even worse if they had no contact with their parents. So he put up a fund to allow, to give money to the parents so they could visit their delinquents in Boston. The second one is similar in a way, the Spanish studies. He thought that with British business, particularly his own business, expanding very fast, they would need to export to foreign lands, particularly the Spanish-speaking lands. I think he must have had interest in South America or something. So he put up all this money to, to fund a chair of Spanish studies in Oxford. Uh, then he got involved in the hospital. First of all, the observatory site. The, the, the telescope on the, in the observatory was going to move to South Africa, and that site became vacant. So Nuffield immediately bought it, uh, and that was going to be a research centre. That became the Nuffield Institute for Medical Research. Uh, a lovely story here. One evening, apparently, he knocked on the door of the Girdlestons' house in his dirty raincoat. It was a you know, classic story, the man in the dirty raincoat. And Mrs. Girdleston answered the door and he said, he gave them a cheque for a thousand pounds. He said, just to keep your nursing home in good, good order. Uh, but then it, it got much better, didn't it? So 32, he built the maternity home for 40,000. He then rebuilt the, the orthopedic hospital for 70,000 and the Radcliffe Infirmary got new wards. And as I've said, many hundreds of donations are listed. 
I said St. Thomas is 100,000. Guy's a bit later got more than that. He fell out with St. Thomas's. I, I think St. Thomas's must have been a bit greedy or something, wanted more, and uh, he, so he never gave more money to Thomas's. He gave a lot of money to Guy's, and he had, I think he kept his lifelong relationship with Guy's Hospital. But look at it. I mean, Birmingham, 200 and odd thousands, Coventry, Mount Vernon, Great Ormond Street, National Hospital for Nervous Disease, you know, it goes on and on, Exeter Orthopedics, Berkshire. And he also, he get, I discovered he gave £100,000 to South Africa also to develop orthopaedic surgery. Uh, that's not even on my list. Guy's honoured him with a statue. There aren't many uh, statues of him around, but there's one in the main quadrangle at Guy's. Uh, the University Medical School really got going in 1936. I think um, his medical friends in Oxford, particularly the Regis Professor, and Hugh Cairns, Hugh Cairns somehow had, a, had a, a back entry to Nuffield. I'm not quite sure how it developed. But they convinced him that the university needed a proper clinical school. It hadn't really got a proper clinical school at that time. And they needed some departments which could research and could train uh, you know, leading doctors. And he went along with this. He was persuaded. And so he offered one and a quarter million the university arranged a special meeting of congregation to approve the gift and he invited Nuffield to come along. Uh, he came along and said, please can I speak? And have I, I put down here, yes, highly irregular since apparently only MAs are allowed to speak in congregation. And he wasn't an MA, he, was, he got an honorary doctorate but he wasn't an MA. Uh, fortunately the Chancellor said, yes please. So he immediately offered another three quarters of a million. Uh, <coughs> Apparently, I think he'd been nobbled. I think uh, they'd, they'd been getting at him and saying one and a quarter million is, is probably not quite enough, really. So, um, and that led, of course, to this wonderful cartoon, which I'm sure some of you have seen. This was E.H. Shepherd in, in, uh, in Punch, December the 2nd, 36. So here's Nuffield with his horn of plenty, and he's saying when. And all these are the greedy dons are standing here collecting the golden guineas. Again, I feel this guy is such a good caricaturist. I'm sure these three are probably recognisable. I can't recognise them, but if any of you have got any hints, I'd love to know that. Uh, so that money, of course, led to the formation of the Nuffield chairs. These, uh, there were four real chairs, surgery, anaesthetics, Obstetrics, and medicine. And he, his friend, he insisted in having a chair of orthopaedics for his friend Girdleston. The anaesthetics one was fun too, wasn't it? Because the university said, well, anaesthetics isn't really an academic subject and there were no professors of anaesthetics apparently in Europe at all. Nuffield had become very friendly with Macintosh and Macintosh had given him a good anaesthetic. Nuffield had had some bad anaesthetic experiences and Nuffield was, did a good job. And so Nuffield then said to the university, no anaesthetics, no money. So the university rather wisely caved into that one. It was a bit the same with Gert Girdleston, who was his friend. It's not, I think it wasn't a full-blown department. But not only that, all these departments got money from him too. Plastic surgery, pathology, ophthalmology, and of course he was funding the Nuffield Institute of Medical Research. So his money was really going very widely in the university in the late 30s. 
Here are the guy, the characters, just to show you. Buzzard, Farquhar Buzzard Regis Professor. Cairns was the Professor of Surgery. Macintosh was the anaesthetist. Chassemois, the obstetrician. Wits, the physician. And Girdleston, the orthopod. And uh, I've put in here, just a little extra, because we have some guests in the audience from this family. A uh, little book has, has recently uh, appeared from the family telling uh, this man's life history. And there's this lovely picture of Nuffield sitting in Chassemois' desk in the, in the maternity hospital in 1938. And there he is, I think, at retirement. But I've only told you a small part of the story, really, because look at this. These are other major recipients, the Nuffield Trust for Special Areas. That was for the socially deprived. That was following up the recession in the 30s. And he was well aware of some of the problems of unemployment and so on, particularly in the north and in South Wales. So he put up two million pounds for the special areas, as they called. He decided he'd like a college in his own name. And that's quite a story too, isn't it? So he put up a million pounds in 59, sorry, in 37. Uh, Oh, don't know what's happened there. It doesn't matter. Um, and of course, he first of all wanted an engineering college, but the university said, well, Cambridge is engineering, and we've got a sort of agreement with Cambridge that we won't really tread on the toes. I think it's pretty bogus. But uh, the registrar, Veal, and the vice chancellor, um, his name slipped my mind. Uh, were very good at arguing. They persuaded him that social sciences would be a better option for the university and would do many of the things that he wanted because he was very supportive of, of socially deprived people. Um, and then for his employees, he put up another two million. For the forces, he put up nearly two million. And then he, for this, the Nuffield Provincial Hospitals Trust, which was to provide medical care for his employees, and this eventually mutated into Booper, another million, and he's still got a lot left. And so his biggest ever was 1943, the Nuffield Foundation. And I, again, I've got a story that I don't know if it's true or not, and again, and I'd like help. The story I heard was that he offered that money to the Radcliffe Infirmary and said, if you will either change your name or put Nuffield in your title, you can have this money. And the trustees of the hospital said, no, that's a step too far. So the foundation was founded. I, I don't know whether it's true, but it's, again, it's a good story, isn't it? Here are two of the, uh, the early trustees of the foundation. This is um, uh, uh, Janet Vaughan here, who I was privileged to meet. She was a great lady. And this is Goodenough, who was a great banker, wasn't he? But it was, I think he was chairman of the hospital too, and he was very much involved in, in hospital affairs. The foundation uh, was to contribute to improvements in society, expansion of education, alleviation of disadvantage, the advancement of social well-being and so on. So he, he had a big interest in that. Um, and they've been doing that ever since, haven't they? I've hardly mentioned his wife, and you hear very little about her. I think she was 
not quite a recluse, but she was not a great socialite, and she didn't attend many of the events he did, but we've caught her here at an Ensenia garden party in 36. She supported some of her own charities as a, a lady no field educational charity that she set up, and I think that's now being taken over by the, the Nuffield Foundation. But I think she was happiest in her own garden with her own dogs and so on. And later on, he used to regularly go on cruises to Australia and distant parts of the world, and, and she didn't accompany him on those either. Uh, here's the house, which I hope some of you know. Uh, typical appearance in front, all sorts of cars, Morris's, Wolseley's, Riley's, uh, MG's. He has a medical library in his house, which is fascinating, and I, I keep saying I'm going to do a little bit of work on it. But basically, I think he's, he had this great interest in medicine, and people used to keep in touch with him, and many of the books are like this, respectfully dedicated to the Lord Nuffield as a token of admiration for what he's done for British medicine. Uh, he also, have you been in his bedroom? He's got this cupboard that you think might be a sort of wardrobe, it's a workshop, so you open it and it's full of his tools and apparently he wasn't a very good sleeper and he used to get up at night and fiddle and fiddle about in his workshop. But it's more interesting than that because you see this little arrow, there's this little thing here which is this and it's his appendix <laughs> in a pot and I think this was removed with, I think Macintosh was the anaesthetist when this was removed. There are all sorts of odds and ends, too, in there. As I said, he was a bit of a hypochondria. He's got some very funny alternative medicine machines in there. Uh, but this is, uh, again, this is a wonderful story, isn't it? This is the iron lung. And he, I think, uh, at the beginning of the war, or maybe even earlier, he offered every Commonwealth hospital that could use it or would, might get polio patients, he offered them one of these. I think they cost about 60 pounds for him to make, something of that order, and I think he made a thousand of them. Uh, in his bedroom there was a photograph of the Queen. There are lots of quotations from him, which I think I probably haven't got time to go through, but this one, I hate politics like the devil hates holy water. Uh, and this one, my father indeed had riches, but of the mind, not of the pocket. The least valuable thing a parent can endow a strong, healthy son with is money. Counsel, correction, example should count for more in equipping him for the battle of life. It is no regret to me that I was not the son of a rich man. And then, what I have been able to do for medicine and teaching in all walks of life has given me more satisfaction than anything else. Which again is, is rather nice, isn't it? So, and then. Uh, there's this plaque, sir. We, we haven't time to read all that, but it's, who am I? I'm, I am work. And he often said that his hobby was work. His honours, he became an OB at the end of the First World War, a baronet, 29, which made him Sir William Morris, then a baron, which made him Lord Nuffield, then a viscount, and then a, a fellow of the Royal Society, and then this, this curious business, a Knight Grand Cross of the British Empire, finally a companion of honour. And he had numerous honorary degrees, memberships of societies, freedom of cities. He obviously quite liked being noticed. Um, 
And these are his memorials, again, extremely modest. They were both, both he and his wife were cremated, and there's this panel up at the crematorium. It's only, they are very small, these panels, aren't they? Only a few inches. And then this is in the graveyard in Nuffield Village, the village where he lived, simply has his name and dates on it. Uh, very much true to form. So, my conclusions. Thank goodness he never became a doctor. <laughs> it, it was said as a young man he would have liked to have been a doctor, but if he'd become a doctor, we wouldn't have had any of this, would we? I think he was a great visionary, a great industrialist, a great benefactor, and a truly great man. Thank you. <laughs>